I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So far, the reading of God's holy word. Loved ones, I want to draw your attention to this missionary letter this evening. It is a missionary letter. Uh, Sometimes we forget that the Apostle Paul, that great author of 13 letters of the New Testament, uh, was also a missionary. Probably the greatest of all missionaries. He wrote this letter Uh, probably during his third great missionary journey around the year A.D. 57, probably while he was in Corinth, in Greece, and he wanted to travel to Italy, to the Italian peninsula, to the city of Rome, and then go on to Spain. Rome was an important place for him to visit because it was the epicenter of all human civilization at that time. Rome was the world's capital, if you will. And it was an impressive city, full of beautiful art and breathtaking architecture. In fact, if you've had the opportunity to visit Rome and you've laid eyes on the Colosseum or the Pantheon or Circus Maximus or many of the structures all around that so-called eternal city, then you know how impressive it must have been to the first century because it's still impressive to us today, 2,000 years later. It must have been an intimidating place for many people. A wonderful city in many ways, but also a very pagan city. An extremely dark city spiritually. Religious devotion to the myriad of gods was rampant in Rome. Uh, There were temples everywhere, many of which you can still visit to this day, in which there were sacrifices and prostitution that went on. This was an ordinary part of Roman daily spirituality. Then there was the worship of the military and the worship of the government and worship of the Caesars. Uh, You can still see many of the the arches sprinkled all over Rome and actually all throughout Italy in the major cities that commemorate uh, victorious battles and invasions uh, led by different Roman generals and, and emperors into different parts of what became the Roman Empire. Then there was the worship of sports. The games were so important to the Romans. Games in which human life had such little value. Uh, Then there was all of 
the sexual debauchery and immorality and self-indulgence. Rome was a, a very dark place in terms of the sexual ethic. Male promiscuity, homosexuality, even pedophilia were all considered to be acceptable practices in Roman society. This was the world in which the early church lived. This was the air it breathed. And not only in the city of Rome, but in pretty much every large city throughout the Italian peninsula and the Roman Empire. It was spiritually dark. Christians were few in number. They were the vast minority. And we see that the church appeared very small and weak to the world at that time. It had almost no cultural, political, or economic power. And it was often subject to state-sponsored persecution. In fact, Christianity had no protection until, as many of you may remember from church history classes, the Edict of Milan. Uh, at that time, in the year 313, Milan was the capital of the Roman Empire, not Rome. And it wasn't until then, when the Emperor Constantine enacted the Edict of Milan, that Christianity enjoyed some legal status and toleration and protection. And yet, for nearly three centuries, loved ones, for nearly 300 years before the Edict of Milan, the church not only survived in a spiritually dark and oppressive culture, but it also flourished and disciples multiplied, even though it lived in an extremely hostile and pagan world. The gospel spread, churches were planted, and disciples were made. How? Not by political power, not by them winning the culture war. That didn't happen for three centuries. But by believers who were committed to the gospel mission of the church and who were willing to submit to King Jesus, who has authority over everything, no matter what the cost. That's how they not only survived, but how the church flourished. And the same holds true for us today, loved ones. You know, as I was describing Roman life in the first century, it's sounding more and more like life here in the West. Worship of sports, worship of the government, spiritually dark. Uh, we're seeing so many things today in Western civilization that look more and more of what Life was like for the early Christians before the Edict of Milan. One example, and this is just one, is the pagan sexual revolution that we are witnessing, in which the last remnants of the Christian sexual ethic are being abandoned in the West. As we all know, things that once were forbidden are now celebrated. Things that once were considered absurd and unheard of are now considered natural and good. And consequently, more and more Christians are increasingly seen as being backward, radical, and even dangerous to society. There is a sense in which Christianity, biblical Christianity, is slowly moving into cultural exile in the West. And if Western civilization should collapse, 
in the name of progress and revolution. The question is, how will Christianity survive? Well, it will survive the same way it did in the first three centuries. Being a committed Christian in those days was a little dangerous. It was challenging, even risky. And yet the church flourished because of their commitment to the gospel, because of their commitment to the word of God, which is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. And this is what makes Paul's letter to the Romans so applicable to today. As we see things in the West becoming the way they are becoming, we see how Paul wrote to churches living in very dark times and instructed them in the gospel mission of the church. And here in this little text here, in verses 14 through 17, the apostle tells us that in the gospel mission of the church, we are urgent, we are unashamed, and we are confident. And that holds true for us today, loved ones. In the first place, in the gospel mission of the church, we are urgent. We are urgent. Notice that Paul says in verse 14 that he is under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Now, what does he mean? Sometimes the New Testament distinguishes between Jews and Greeks, as Paul does later in this text. And by that, it means Jews and Gentiles, because there's a sense in which all people in the world fall into one of those two ethnic categories. You're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. But here Paul makes a different distinction. He makes a cultural one between, Jew, between Greeks and what he calls barbarians. In the, in, in the first century Greco-Roman world, to be considered a Greek rather than a barbarian did not necessarily mean that you were ethnically Greek, but that you spoke Greek, which was the universal language at that time. And that to some degree, you also embraced uh, Greek culture and philosophy. So you were considered cultured. You were considered educated, the wise. But to those who heard people speak in non-Greek languages, local dialects, uh, it sounded like unintelligible chatter. Bar, 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 bar. Hence the name barbarian. And these were people who were not educated or sophisticated in Greek culture and philosophy. And so you were one or the other. Uh, you were a Greek or you were a barbarian. Paul's point in verse 14 is that he saw himself as obligated to preach the gospel to and make disciples of all people. He, he made no discrimination between cultures, social classes, or nationalities. Paul saw himself as obligated to his neighbor, even as a debtor to his neighbor, whether his neighbor was one whom the world considered to be cultured or uncultured, wise or foolish. He was in debt to all people to preach the gospel and to make disciples no matter the cost. Why? Because Paul knew that the gospel is the solution to the greatest problem that every human being faces. Now, what is the greatest problem that every human being faces? There are lots of problems that human beings face. 
And all of us tonight came in here with certain problems that we're facing, maybe large, maybe small. If we were to go out onto the street this evening and find a populated place uh, and ask people, what's your greatest problem? What's your greatest problem? What's your greatest problem? You're going to get a variety of answers, right? Oh, well, I, I need a surgery, or my wife has cancer, or my wife left me. I'm going through a second divorce. I haven't spoken with my children. I have broken relationships. I need a job. On and on it would go. And there's serious problems, grave problems, problems that hurt, problems that can change the course of a person's life. And then when we look at the world, the world has large problems. It's always had problems since the fall. But anytime we turn on the news, we see there are wars and rumors of wars. And there is still famine. There's still disease. There's, there are problems in the world. If we were to go, however, and solve all of those problems, the large macro problems of famine and war and disease, and also the personal problems, whatever they may be, solve them all, fix them all, so the world is a better place, man would still have this great problem that he must face. Every human being would still have the greatest problem that he has, and that needs to be solved, which is this. He needs to be made right with a holy God. The God who created us demands from us a righteousness that is as good as his own. And that's the great problem that all of us have. And yet the Bible offers the solution to it. The Bible deals with this problem. From Genesis to Revelation, the great question with which the Bible is concerned is how can a sinner be made right with God? The great question with which the Bible is concerned is not how can I be more happy? Or how can I, be, how can I have a better life? How can I be a better person? How can I make the world a better place? You know, the truth is that we can pursue those questions, and those are legitimate questions, apart from Christianity. The thing that Christianity, and only Christianity, can answer is how can a sinner be made right with God? How can a holy God justify the wicked? Only Christianity can answer that question. And Paul knew this. Paul knew that sin is the great common denominator with all people, rich or poor, black or white, educated or uneducated, whether in the U.S. or in Italy or in the third world, it doesn't matter. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. All have offended this holy Creator who cannot look upon sin and who demands from us holiness and righteousness because He created humans in true holiness and righteousness. And this holy God is just. As Hebrews tells us, it is appointed once for man to die, and then comes the judgment. And this is what makes the gospel mission of the church so urgent. Paul knew he had the solution. Paul knew that he held in his hand the remedy, the, the cure, as it were, to the greatest problem all human beings are facing. The gospel the gospel, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. 
as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul quotes from the Old Testament from the prophet Habakkuk in order to show that the only way we can be made righteous in God's sight is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In ourselves, we cannot produce the righteousness that we need. Biblical righteousness means to have upright behavior by God's standards, not by our own standards. You know, it's easy to say, I'm not a bad person. How many times have you heard someone say that? Well, I'm a good person. Well, we're measuring ourselves by our own standards. And it's easy to compare ourselves to someone else. We can always find someone who maybe appears a little less righteous than us, right? But righteousness by God's standards is another issue. As Paul goes on to say in chapter 2, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are righteous, who, are, who will be justified. And that's bad news for sinners who cannot do the law perfectly and perpetually. The law says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do this and you shall live. That's why we've been created. That's what brings glory to God. That's what God demands of us. The problem is, being sinners, we can't do this perfectly. The good news is that someone has done it for us in our place. And that someone is who the gospel proclaims. The Lord Jesus Christ, the second Adam who fulfilled that which the first Adam failed to do and did for us that which we could not do for ourselves. Namely, obey God's law perfectly and merit eternal life for us in our place. His righteousness, says Paul, is, is received by us, sinners, by faith alone. The law says, be righteous and you shall live. But the gospel says, the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Christ is the object of our faith and Christ is the source of the righteousness that we need in order to be made right with God. His good works are given to us merely by faith. Merely of grace. That seems too good to be true. I remember the first time that that dawned on me as a Christian. I didn't grow up reformed and never heard much about the doctrine of justification by faith alone or Christ's imputed righteousness or how I could be... The, the gospel was never that good to me growing up. And then as it began to dawn on me and, and I began to attend a reformed church, I can still remember my first reformed pastor, Reverend Andrew Caminga at the Escondido URC decades ago gave an illustration that's always stuck with me. He said, you know, it's as if you died and you were standing at the pearly gates and there's an angel there and he has a, a big book and he asks you, what is your name? And I say, Michael Brown. And he goes and he looks and he says, ah, I see, here you are. Wow, are you this saint? It says here that you've always loved the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. It says here you've loved your neighbor as yourself. That when you were reviled, you didn't revile back. That you never said anything nasty in person or on Facebook. It says here that you never sinned in word, thought, or deed. 
It says here that you visited those in prison, that you gave to the poor, that you healed the sick. Are you the saint? And you can say, yes, that's me. How? Because Christ's obedience, Christ's performance has been credited to you. And now God sees it as if you had done it yourself, as Heidelberg Catechism question 60 tells us. It seems too good to be true, and yet it is true. It's been validated by Christ's resurrection as seen by eyewitnesses. It's the gospel that Paul proclaimed, and it's the gospel that we proclaim, loved ones. It's the greatest news that anyone can hear on the planet throughout his or her life. And yet how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Paul asks that set of rhetorical questions in chapter 10. Faith comes from hearing, Paul says, and hearing from the Word of Christ. And that's what makes the Gospel mission so urgent. And it's why we send out missionaries to different parts of the world. Even places like Italy that is tough, tough soil. We are urgent to bring this Gospel message, the life-saving message, to sinners. And it's worth it. It's all worth it. It is through this sense of urgency also that Christianity will survive in the coming generations. So we are urgent in the gospel mission of the church. But we are also unashamed, loved ones. We are urgent and we are unashamed. Notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. He was ready to go to Rome, the capital, the epicenter of all civilization and proclaim in that place, in the capital of the Roman Empire, something bigger, the kingdom of God. And when they looked at him, they probably laughed. The kingdom of God. Didn't you just get out of prison? Ragtag, shipwrecked, beaten up, scarred. When you looked at Paul's life, it didn't look very blessed. We often pray for blessing. We always pray for God's blessing. I mean, what else do we do? We don't pray for His cursing. We pray for His blessing. But we often think of His blessing only in the way that appears as blessing to the world. And Paul's life didn't look blessed. In fact, many people looked at him and said, he's not blessed. He's cursed. He must not be a real apostle. He's in prison again. And in the first century world, your gods were supposed to protect you and provide for you. And they didn't see much protection or provision when they looked at Paul. Nowadays, people would look at him, a guy like Paul, that was constantly in some kind of trouble, just from preaching the gospel, and say, he must have a lot of bad karma. He must have done a lot of stuff bad in his life to have it all come back on him. And the truth is sometimes that we even tend to think that way a little bit, don't we? Even as Reformed Christians, I mean, I know we, we denounce, and we should, the health and wealth 
gospel, and we talk about a theology of the cross rather than a theology of glory. And yet sometimes, you know, when push comes to shove in our lives or in the culture, uh, we start to doubt a little bit and think, well, if Christianity is true, why does the church appear so weak before the world? If, the, if Christianity is true, why is the church so messy? Why is the Christian life so messy? And we find ourselves being a little ashamed at times, as people were of Paul. And yet here's Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God in Rome of all places, unashamed, because he knows it's something grander, something bigger, something greater. And he's unafraid. He's unashamed. He's unashamed of Jesus. He went in weakness. He went in humility. But he also went with urgency and zeal and a sense of unashamedness. It's true that much of the church today seems to be a little ashamed of the gospel. It seems that way. One writer put it this way, the church in America today is so obsessed with being practical, relevant, helpful, successful, and perhaps even well-liked, that it nearly mirrors the world itself. Aside from the packaging, says this writer, there is nothing that cannot be found in most churches today that could not be satisfied by any number of secular programs and self-help groups. And the truth is that that kind of ministry is appealing to the world. It's attractive to the world. It looks powerful. But it can't convert the sinner, loved ones. It cannot convert the sinner. And this is why we are unashamed of the gospel. You know, where we minister in Milan, uh, if you've had the opportunity to travel to Italy, you know that it is the, probably the most aesthetically pleasing place, speaking of architecture and art, on the whole planet. And in Milan itself is one of the largest church buildings in the world. It has more statues than any structure on the planet. It took over 500 years to build. It holds over 40,000 people. It is eye-popping. People go 365 days a year, except for during COVID lockdowns, uh, to go visit. And you have to pay tickets in order to get in to this church, this cathedral, the Duomo. There's no gospel there. It's hollow. There's relics. There's a piece of the cross. If you want to see it, you can pay money. There's still indulgences. Those things never stopped. Not in Italy. And far on the outskirts of town in this massive city, I'll show pictures of it later in the slideshow, is a funky little converted computer store some weeds out in front, it doesn't look that great, certainly not by Italian standards. But inside, there's something different. The gospel is proclaimed. And the gospel has the power to raise the dead. All of the cathedrals, all of the relics, all of the programs, big buildings, big budgets, cannot convert the sinner. The gospel has the power to do that. And that brings us to our last point, that we are confident in the message. We are confident 
in the gospel mission of the church. We are unashamed. We are urgent. But we are also confident. Why? Because as Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Only the gospel has the ability to release and liberate the prisoner from his chains of unbelief. And it is not only the power of God unto conversion, but it is also the power of God for our sanctification. Because as we know, the Gospel has the ability to do certain things to us. It gives us a new heart that now desires to obey the Lord. It gives us a drive birthed out of gratitude to obey the law of God joyfully. It brings us back again and again to repentance. Confessing, that's why we feel so bad about our sins. Because of Christ and what God has done for us in the Gospel. The Gospel is also for our sanctification. When the Gospel is brought home to our hearts, it begins to renew our minds and change the way we think. We realize that we don't have to be moral just to feel good about ourselves or look good in front of others. But rather, we desire to be obedient to God and obey His commands because we love Him. And we want to please Him. The One who loved us and gave Himself for us. We don't have to lie and and cheat and steal from our employer or from other people because we've got an inheritance that nobody can touch. We don't have to look down on others and, and judge them with an air of superiority because... Our identity is no longer found in ourselves. It's in Christ. The Gospel changes us. It has the power to do that. And that makes us confident as we go into the world with this Word, loved ones. As we go forward, we go equipped with this sword. And this is precisely what what Martin Luther said when people asked him about the the Reformation and how it all came to pass, he said, how did you do it, Dr. Luther? He said, listen, I simply, I'm quoting here, I simply taught, preached, wrote God's Word, otherwise I did nothing. And then while I slept, drank Wittenberg beer with Philip and Amsdorf, the Word so greatly weakened all who opposed me. I did nothing. The Word did it all. For it is almighty and takes captive the hearts. And if the hearts are captured, the evil work will fall of itself. If the hearts are captured, that's what the Word does. That's why we can go to a place like Italy that is so spiritually dark and hard that on the one hand has the deepest cultural Catholicism of any country, and yet on the other hand is at the same time, strangely, radically progressive and postmodern, post-Christian with an atheistic European mindset and bring the Gospel confidently, knowing that it has the ability to capture hearts. As Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. I'm with you to the end of the age. And it's that confidence, loved ones, it's that confidence with which Paul wrote, even at the end of his life, 
at the end of 30 years of apostolic ministry, as he wrote to that young pastor of the church of Ephesus, to Timothy, if you want to turn with me as we close, to 2 Timothy chapter 4. I always think 2 Timothy uh, is the most underrated book of the New Testament because it's the last thing that the Apostle Paul wrote before he died, before he was executed. And he writes it during his second imprisonment in Rome. I mean, this is where going to Rome got him eventually. And many had abandoned him, many had left him, many had turned their backs on him, thought, he, he's so cursed by God with being in prison all the time, I can't follow him. And he relentlessly preached the gospel to the end, undeterred, urgent, unashamed, and confident in the word. So that he really has one thing to say to Timothy. One thing. If you had one thing to say to someone you loved and wanted to mentor and shape, before you died, what would you say? Here's what Paul says. After three chapters of introduction, he says, this is what I really want to say to you in chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing in His kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. No promises there of an easy life. No promises of being able to escape persecution. To the contrary, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, he said. But his confidence was in the Word. Preach the Word, Paul says. The power is not in cathedrals or relics, not in even Christians gaining political control or economic power, but in the Word of God, in the Gospel. And may God strengthen us, no matter what comes in the future, to stay focused on the Gospel mission of the church with urgency, being unashamed, and with confidence in His Spirit and in the power of His Word. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Your Word proclaims. Thank You for His life, death, and resurrection. Thank You that all power in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. Thank You that He is King over all, so that we can go confidently into this world that belongs to Him and proclaim the victory that He has already obtained. O oh Lord, we pray... Give us zeal for your gospel. Make us urgent. Give us compassion for the lost. Help us, we pray, Father, to continue to be involved in church planting and missions and also in evangelism and speaking lovingly and patiently with our neighbor about the truth, about this glorious gospel which we know, which we love, which has saved us. And may we look, O oh Lord, we pray, with hope and expectation to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, when all things will be perfectly under His feet 
and all will give glory to Him. Oh Lord, we thank You and we look forward to that day. We pray that Christ would hasten the day of His coming and until then make us faithful in the ministry that You have given us. Bless First URC, we pray. Bless this congregation and this church and the preaching of the Word. Bless Reverend Niemeyer as he brings your gospel week in and week out. Strengthen faith, hope, and love. Continue to make disciples. And may the gospel continually be brought home to our hearts, we pray. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Loved ones, let's turn and respond to God's Word this evening. Would you sing with me number 417? Uh, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Jesus shall reign where the sun. Let's stand together and lift up our voices to the Lord. Receive by faith God's benediction and blessing upon your lives. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.